We've had to do that a few times in this series. Um, these narratives are long. Um, <clears throat> if you wonder why we read so much of them, um, these narratives are meant to hang together, and we really believe that there is value uh, in simply hearing the Word of God uh, the way that, we're, that, that, it's, that it's given to us. So in some sense, I wish I, wish I were a better reader. Um, you know, I wish we had like a professional voice actor who could come up here um, and, and really just bring the power of this story. But I just want to invite you to just sit uh, and to listen uh, and, to, and to listen to this story uh, before we dive into it. If you'd like to read along, um, this is Genesis 31, verses 17 to 55, and it can be found on page 25 in the Blue Pew Bibles. So here is Genesis 31, 17 to 55. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Paddan Aram to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban, with his kinsmen, pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me, so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all around the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. 
These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By day the heat consumed me and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I have been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters, or for their children whom they have borne? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagar Saharathah, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid and Mizpah. For he said, the Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives besides my daughters, though no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, see this hilp, this heap, and the pillar, which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together before we come to this passage. <clears throat> Father in heaven, at this time of year, Thanksgiving uh, is on our, our minds, and we have much to be thankful for. Uh, we have much to be thankful for in the way that you have blessed this congregation throughout this year, the way you have caused it to thrive and cause it to grow and caused it, um, Father, in many ways to walk before you faithfully. Um, we are grateful for the way that your word uh, has undergirded so much of what we have done this year from the preaching and the reading uh, of, of your word, um, from our, our worship service, but, but also the opportunities that we've had to gather uh, and sit under your word in, in prayer, in Bible study, in, in reading together the Psalms uh, and Luke um, and, then, and then Acts in the, in the coming year. Father, we believe the promises that you have made that say that your word does not depart from you uh, and return without accomplishing its purposes. Um, and so we're grateful for a time of year to, to pause uh, and to take stock 
and to look at what you have done through your word uh, among your people here. Father, you know the cares of our hearts that we continue to hold up before you. Uh, you know uh, the anxieties that are, are before us. Um, Father, we have been praying corporately as a, a body uh, for much of this year um, for peace uh, around the world. Um, Father, we continue uh, to pray for Ukraine. We continue to pray uh, for our brothers and sisters there uh, who continue to worship, who continue to look to you uh, with great hope. And we continue to ask uh, that you would bring that conflict, which has gone on now uh, over nine months, uh, to an end and to a swift end. Um, that, that lives would not be lost unnecessarily, um, that ways of lives would not be um, hindered uh, and squashed uh, without purpose. Um, Father, we are grateful to be able to look to you as the God um, who um, is God not only over this um, congregation here, but, but over, the, over the church uh, across time and space and over the whole world because you are its creator uh, and its redeemer and you govern all things um, to the ends that you have appointed uh, for them. And we believe that those ends are good even when before our eyes there's so much suffering. Um, and so much waste, um, and so much that we, that we lament. Um, Father, we hold this tension up to you as a way of, of praising your name, uh, saying there, there is much in our lives and much in the world that is not the way that it's supposed to be, and yet we proclaim you uh, as the one who is worthy uh, to hear that lament and the one uh, who is able uh, to do something about all of the ways that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And so we pray, Father, that you would bring peace, that you would bring wholeness, that you would bring well-being. Um, we pray, Jesus, that you would come and come quickly. Um, we look to you uh, as our only salvation. Father, as we now turn to this passage uh, and, and consider where it is that you're at work uh, in the life of your servant uh, and our forefather, Jacob, um, I pray, Father, uh, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. <clears throat> well, one of the things I love about the story of Jacob um, is just its, its, its length, its complexity, just its richness as a narrative um, we, we've sort of been in this middle period, right? I mean, there's sort of the, there's the early years, you know, when he's at home and it's Jacob and Esau and he steals the birthright and he steals the blessing. Um, and of course, he's heading back home. He's heading back to his father's uh, home now. He's heading back uh, to Canaan, uh, to, to his father, uh, and to his brother, who, if you remember, when he left, uh, had sworn to kill him for stealing his birthright. Um, but in between, there's been this long middle section. Um, and it's kind of like a lot of the stories that we, that we have where, you know, the hero has to go out and deal with some kind of intermediate challenge um, where they're tested and their character is built and developed before they go home to face the real challenge, right? The real, the real big thing. Um, you know, so you think about the Lord of the Rings, you know, and the struggle against Saruman uh, in, the, in the middle before... Sauron uh, is faced. Or, you know, if you like the Harry Potter books, each of those, there's some intermediate challenge, you know, whether it's 
Snape or, or Umbridge or, or whoever it is <clears throat> that's all building up to the final, the final conflict. Um, it's tempting to read that story in this way, you know, and say, you know, Laban is kind of, you know, the middle boss before you get to the big bad boss, you know, at the end of the, at the, end of the story. Um, but I don't think that's quite the way this, this story is working. Um, Jacob has been dealing with his uncle. Um, the two of them have sort of met their match in each other. They're both tricksters. They're both manipulative. They've both been deceptive at different times. Um, and now he's escaping. Um, but in some ways, the real struggle that's in front of him that we're being set up for isn't to go back and face his brother Esau. Um, there's something bigger. There's something deeper um, that's at play throughout Jacob's life that he has to struggle with. Um, and I would say it really comes down to this, this theme that we've been unpacking in these past couple weeks. Will Jacob live as though he has a father? Will Jacob escape <clears throat> from living life as an orphan? Will he, he learn not to live as one who only has himself to rely on, who only can rely on his own devices, but who, as one who has a father? Uh, who is taking care of him, and, and who, you remember, on the way to Laban, made some really deep and personal promises. I will be with you, God said. I will bring you back to this place. I will not leave you until I've done everything that I've promised to give you. Um, the real struggle of Jacob's life is, is he ever going to believe those promises? Um, in the passage we're going to look at today, um, <clears throat> and we have to be somewhat brief with it because we took up so much time reading it, um, that's the trade-off. Um, but in the passage that we are going to look at today, I think we're seeing Jacob make some progress. Um, I want us to see the progress that he is making. Um, I also want us to see the distance um, that, he, that he still has to go. Um, I would say we're seeing him express confidence in God. He clearly knows that there is a God in heaven. He knows that that God has taken care of him. Um, the problem is, I think what we're seeing in this passage is a confidence that's based on presumption and a confidence that's based more on him being convinced that he's in the right rather than really being based on the graciousness of his father and the love that his father has from him even when he's wrong. Um, and we'll see that get tested uh, in, these, in these coming weeks. So I think we can break this passage down into three sections, just in terms of the narrative. Um, I mean, it is, a, it is a good story. There's kind of a chase scene, right? There's a chase. Um, and then uh, there's a search. Uh, and then there's this covenant that gets made um, in the end. So let's look at each of these scenes, you know, and see what we can get from them. So to begin with, Jacob heads out. Right, and, and one positive thing you have to say is that he's doing this um, at the Lord's command. Right? Back in verse 3, God said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. Repeated that promise. Right? And so Jacob is going. Um, by the way, there's a lot in this story. Think about the original context. Think about who was hearing these stories the first time that they were told. Right? If Moses is telling these stories... You know, who's he talking to? He's talking to people um, that are fleeing from the house of bondage, 
and are in the wilderness on the way to the promised land. Right? And so you can see elements of their own story in Jacob's. There's a lot here for them to identify with. Jacob also is fleeing from a house which in some ways has been, has been bondage back to the land uh, that, that he was promised um, by God with a lot of wealth. Just like the, the Israelites plundered the Egyptians, you know, Jacob in some sense has plundered Laban and is, is heading out now, uh, a, wealthy, a wealthy man. Um, I, I think that's significant just in that, um, just to, to, to notice in passing, God likes to tell his people stories. God likes to use stories to tell us who he is uh, and what he has done. And he even um, commands us to tell those stories to each other and to our children. And there's that, that place in, in, by now you know, this is my favorite psalm, Psalm 78, um, you know, where God says, I want you to tell these stories to your children so that they'll set their hope on me and not forget what I've done and obey all my commandments. And those, and those things are so tightly linked. There is just no chance at all that we will be able to obey God um, when it counts, when it's costly, when it's hard. There's no chance that we'll be able to obey him if we don't remember what he has done for us. Um, and so it's important to tell ourselves the story, the story that we have here in Scripture, as well as the stories of how God has been at work in our own lives. Um, we need to be able to remind ourselves of his works and the, his faithfulness um, to us. So Jacob, Jacob is taking off. He's chosen an opportune time to go. Laban is out shearing the sheep. So he's kind of, he's both distracted and he also has to like move physically like out into the fields to, to take care of this. Um, and so this is a time when Jacob can, can leave. And as you, you see in the text, um, he gets himself a three-day head start. Right? He leaves, and it says on the third day, Laban was told uh, that, that Jacob has fled. And it takes Laban seven more days uh, to catch up. <clears throat> um, fortunately, God has warned Laban in a dream not to harm him. And so then we get this speech um, from Laban. Um, and everything in this, it's not exactly, it's not exactly lying right? Um, this is like a particular kind of lying um, that I can't actually say uh, from pulpit, from, from the pulpit, but ironically it, it rhymes with pulpit. Um, it's a particular kind of, of, of lying which Laban is not trying to get Jacob to believe the false things that he's saying, right? What does he say? He says, what have you done? Um, you've tricked me, driven away my daughters like captives of the sword. Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre, right? You know, like I would have thrown a party for you, Jacob. You've never had a problem with one of my parties before, right? Um, why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Um, Laban knows that what he's saying isn't true. Laban knows that Jacob knows that what he's saying isn't true. Laban knows that Jacob knows that Laban knows, right? And, and, and so on, right? Like there's no level at which there's any actual deception take, taking place here. When someone lies in that way, this is a sheer act of power, right? I don't care about the truth. I don't have to. Um, if you don't believe me, I think he comes to the real point, 
when he says, look, it is in my power to do you harm. I'm stronger than you. I'm more new. You may have taken some wealth, but I'm more than you are. I could hurt you right now. Um, that is the actual point uh, of, what, of what he's saying. But fortunately, he's received this oracle from God, and he takes it seriously. Um, and so he doesn't, he doesn't harm him. Jacob, in response to Laban accusing him of, of stealing the household gods, with Jacob, Jacob isn't aware that Rachel did that, that Rachel took the household gods. Um, whether she did that um, out of spite or whether she did that because she actually believed that the household gods might help, that's not clear, right? The narrator doesn't make that, that clear to us. Um, but regardless, she has stolen these gods, and Jacob makes this rash vow that if Laban finds them, the person he finds them with will die, right? Um, and that leads us to this, this second section, uh, the search. They search, they look, uh, they can't find them. Um, the commentators say that, you know, what, what Rachel says to her father, so she, she sits she puts the, the gods in a saddle, the camel saddle, and she sits on them. And she says, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. Now, the commentators say, either this is true, in which case, in that culture, this would have been the ultimate act of rebuke and repudiation of these, of these household gods. It, would just, it really would be that dishonoring uh, to these gods. Or she's just being clever, right? And she's telling Laban a lie, uh, that he isn't willing to challenge. Um, and so she gets off uh, scot-free. They don't, they don't find the gods. And then here's where I think we see Jacob making halting progress in terms of his relationship with God. Um, because look at the way that he responds. The narrator actually gives us a, a clue to this or, or describes this. Um, in verse 36... Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Now, as he goes through this, this speech, on the one hand, um, he is claiming God's protection. He's expressing confidence that God has taken care of him. He says, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. And yet the fact that he is doing this in a spirit of anger, uh, that he is berating Laban, um, I think we can identify with what's going on here. Um, I think that what we're seeing in Jacob here is kind of that delicious joy of righteous anger. Uh, do, do you know what I'm talking about? You know, you know the, the kind of anger when you get to be angry with somebody and you really know that you're right? Like you really know that they have wronged you, they have accused you of something, it has been proven false, and now you get to be angry. And there's just kind of this like, just glee that we have at, at getting to be in that position. Um, I can tell you when I experience that the most, I know that I experience that from time to time because I ride a bicycle in Boston. Um, and there's two rules for riding a bicycle in Boston. One, assume you're invisible, just, just assume. They can't see you. Uh, and the other is assume that someone's going to do something stupid all the time, because they will, right? 
And, and I can't tell you, I mean, like, I'm kind of a different person on that bike. Um, it, might be a, it, it might be a little bit necessary. That might have kept me alive a few times. Um, but when I see, I, I'm coming up to that intersection and I see that person that doesn't have their blinker on, but I know they're gonna make that right turn right in front of me, you know? And, and there's just, just a joy that I'm not proud of, right? In just getting angry at this person, you know, that, that, that made that mistake. Um, you can probably think of times when you've experienced this in much less trivial settings, right? So can I. Um, with people that I actually have to relate to on a, on a day-to-day basis, not just, not just some driver. Um, Jacob spends time rehearsing his abuse, right? I mean, he, he details all of it. He's been stewing on this for a while, right? He's got a speech prepared. Um, where do you find yourself doing that? Are there, are there stories of how people have wronged you that you find yourself just telling and telling and rehearsing and refining, you know, for the, for the day when you'll finally get to bring it out. Um, I know I do. I know I have those, those, those stories. Um, these are some of the most dangerous emotions that we have, I think. These are some of the things that we, we most need to bring into the light uh, in, in prayer uh, to pray that God would help us to not uh, hold hold these kinds of grudges. Um, the fact that Jacob is is expressing confidence in God, but but doing it without any sort of compassion. And again, as Bradley said last week, um, you know there is no chance at all um, that Jacob is going to be a blessing to Laban's family here. And this is the calling of Jacob's family. Jacob's family has been called to be a blessing to all nations, and yet tragically even with his own relatives, right? Laban, who's actually in his family. Um, they're, they're breaking off their relationship uh, in anger, uh, him, him berating. So I would say kind of two cheers for Jacob here. You know, it's, it's good that he has identified there is a God and this God is taking care of me. Um, but right now he's resting that care. He's resting his confidence on the fact that he's in the right and he gets to be angry. And one way I think we know that he's doing this is because if you, if you let your eyes skim down, I won't read this right now because it's next week's te- text, but if you skim down to the way that he prays when he's approaching Esau and he knows he's not in the right, um, he's full of fear. So Jacob is living in a world where when he's in the right, he can be confident, but when he's not, he's full of fear. Um, that's the thing that he's gonna have to, gonna have to struggle with. We'll see this next week. Um, the scene wraps up with this covenant that they, that they form. Um, there's two things going on here. On the one hand, um, this scene very much echoes the one between the Philistines uh, and Isaac. Right? When the Philistines came and, and also kind of made a very false show about, hey, we've never treated you wrong before, right? Even though they had been stealing all of Isaac's water. Uh, let's make a covenant. Um, Laban is kind of in that role now. You know, let's make a covenant uh, between us. And so they make this covenant. And so in some way, it echoes that scene of God being faithful and providing peace 
right? That, that was a moment when Isaac um, was provided with peace and with rest, and he really stepped into that and embraced uh, the way that God is, was, was providing for him. That's going on here. Um, at the same time, again, it's somewhat tragic because, you know, a lot of covenants in the Bible have the effect of bringing people that aren't related into a family-like relationship, you know, where the covenant says, we're going to act as though we're father and son or, or brothers. This covenant does the opposite, right? If you, if you, if you look at what they do here with, with these pillars and these stones, uh, Laban says, basically, I've put a marker down, and this is my side, and that's your side. And you're not going to cross over and, and hurt me, and I'm not going to cross over and harm you. It's, it's almost like they're, you know, childhood siblings sharing a room, right? And they, and they just, they're bickering so much that they have to put masking tape down the middle and say, your side, my side, right? No more crossing. Um, this is a covenant that's actually breaking up a family. Um, and so in that sense, uh, it's, a, it's a tragic thing. Um, there is more to say about this passage, but we're short on time. Uh, and so I just want to move to say, what do we make of all of this? Um, there's two things, again, going on here. On the one hand, yet again, we have a story where if you're looking for a human character that you could emulate and say, I want to be like that guy, um, it's hard to find, right? You, you can't really find anybody who's acting all that well here. You know, you see Jacob making progress, but again, it's, it's halting. Um, but God, on the other hand, God is continuing to preserve, right? God told Jacob to flee at the right time. Um, <clears throat> God told Laban not to harm Jacob, and Laban took that seriously. God protects Rachel uh, from, from the effects of her husband's rash vow, right? So in a lot of ways, we see God's um, faithfulness um, throughout this. We're being given a view here into events that we rarely have that tells us unambiguously that the Lord is the one causing Jacob to flourish for the sake of his promises to, that, to this family and through them to the world. So contrary to what Jacob thinks, that he's the one pulling himself up by his own bootstraps, it is very much God who is in control here and God who is providing and God who is leading. Um, the second thing that I think we see here, um, I want to leave you with this question. Can you, can you identify with Jacob? Can you, can you identify with those times when you have been tempted to or you have um, built your identity, built your confidence in who you are in a sense that you're in the right, that there is a certain standard, right, and you have met it, and other people have not, Right, and they and they are the ones that you can disregard or, or critique or judge, and then there might be some beyond, and you aspire, you know. But there's a standard, and you have met it, and that's how you know that you're okay. Um, I want to warn you: that is a very, very fragile way to build an identity. Um, that's a fragile way uh, to build your confidence, um, and it's not what's being put before us in the gospel. Um, God is not saying, uh, you know, here is my law and, and follow this, and if you meet this standard, then you have a place with me. Um, in fact, he's saying just the opposite. Um, 
he's saying you haven't met the standard. But here's one who has. Here's Jesus, who has met not only your standard, he's met a much higher standard. Most of us don't hold ourselves to a standard of perfection. Um, but Jesus has met that standard, and he's done that in our place. But then, but then he stood in our place and accepted the penalty for our failures uh, and, and, and for our sin. If you're building your identity on meeting some standard, that is going to come crashing down because at some point you will fail it. Um, none of us can live up to any standard perfectly, in, indefinitely. Uh, at some point, we will fail it, um, and, that, and that will come crashing down. But if you say instead, my identity, my freedom, my worth, all of this is built on what someone else has done for me that cannot be changed, that happened historically, that is something that can't be taken away from you. Um, that means that no matter how much you fail, there's always a remedy. Um, there's always someone to turn to. Um, there's always forgiveness being offered again and again on the basis of what Jesus has done for us. Um, we come to this table each week in some ways as the first act of acknowledging that truth. It's our first act of repentance. Um, so before we come to this table, let's bow our heads one more time and let's pray.